Hi, everyone, and welcome to Angle on Producers, the show where I shine a light on producers from all corners of the industry to understand who they are, what they do, and how they sustain doing it. As always, I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. Hey, however you found the show, I am so grateful you're here tuning in as often as you do doing this live thing with me without you listening and connecting with me outside of the show. It doesn't happen. I'm grateful that we are building this community and that we are here to support each other navigating the ups and downs of this crazy business. So thank you. Speaking of craziness, guys, I'm very excited because this month I am embarking on a new chapter of my career, a new adventure. I'm not able to say exactly what it is yet, but it'll be announced in September and it's going to be game changing for me. I'm thrilled, excited, nervous to be challenged in a whole new way. It's going to be pretty awesome. If you don't already, follow me on Insta for more frequent updates on all things Kaka. <laughs> I'm at Carolina Gropa and the show's at Angle on Producers. This week, I am delighted to share my chat with Rowena Wallace, producer and manager at Peach House, a London-based talent management and production outfit. She co-founded the company with former agent George Monkland, who worked in talent representation for nearly 15 years at some of the UK's major agencies, including 42 independent talent, CDA and Finch and Partners. Rowena initially resisted the idea of becoming a manager, and we get into why that is, of course, during the episode. But a chance meeting with Sarah Curran, the founder and CEO of Tricycle Media, who ended up financing the company, changed everything for her, changed her mind when she suggested that she partner with George and form this new entity. Rowena is so lovely, and it was a joy to get a glimpse into her journey and understanding how things function in the UK and how it's different from how they work here. So this week, we dive deep into self-confidence, the art of cold calling slash emailing, and her advice on one of her favorite parts of the job, negotiating. We also swap stories on sharing elevators with very famous and attractive celebrities. A fun little banter for you there in the middle of this episode. So let's tune in and hear from Rowena. I always just wanted to work in film and and you know used to watch a lot of film and television when I was younger and I was an, I'm an only child and my father sadly passed away so I came from a single parent household um from quite a young age and and uh my mom and I would watch a lot of films and tv together and and you know I just I remember her saying to me once you know you've got to got to do your homework got to get outside like you'll never get a job from watching tv and I was like I will prove you wrong <laughs> um, and yeah, and I think I, I always knew I wanted to be in this world. I didn't know necessarily that producing was the thing until I was maybe a teenager. But I um and I figured out what producing actually meant because obviously, you know, as is the point of this podcast, many, many people don't really understand what producing is. And At that point, what what was the definition in your head of what a producer was? Um I think truth I you know, I wanted to be in charge of of making films and I but I didn't want to be the person who was necessarily like creatively in charge in terms of directing them I, I wanted to be using two different sides of my brain I come from a family of brokers like shit broke my both my parents were shit brokers and so negotiating is something that I really enjoy which is weird because a lot of people hate it but <laughs> um but I you know I really like negotiating I like I like using my log- logical side of my brain but I also am a very creative person and, and you know I love telling stories and and obviously you don't get into this business unless you love telling stories and um so I think that naturally I worked out that the producer was kind of like the the most senior job or exec producer in television or however you know however you want to look at it but in, in film specifically worked out that 
yeah you know the producer was the the person in charge of everything and not to sound like a horrible micromanager but I think like I like <laughs> the idea of being having oversight over the whole thing yeah and yeah so I, I um I didn't really have any connections I, I you know I went to I went to a university in London and an arts university and I did drama and theatre arts and you know did a lot of acting and produced plays and wrote plays and and uh, at one point thought I wanted to be an actress and I you know quickly quick killed that dead because I realized I absolutely didn't want to be an actress after I saw sort of um two of my like contemporaries I guess go up for the same role and kind of fight for, fight for the role in this, in this tv show and I thought mm. I, I just I don't want to be in a position where I'm you know um shitting on my friends to get somewhere for want of a better phrase right quite, quite a bit of female producers that I've spoken to started out as actors which I find oh, interesting really? or performers of some kind yeah yeah I think, I mean, I always used to do it when I was at school. I used to, you know, school and university, I used to be in stage plays and musicals and things. Mm -hmm. And I loved it, but I, I just felt more comfortable behind the camera or, be or behind the stage. And um, yeah. I was 17 or 18. Um, it's like I said, I didn't really have any connections in into the world. So I uh, completely by coincidence, there was this BBC show called Lark Rise to Candleford, which was a sort of Sunday night period drama, very popular here, ran for three seasons. Um and they were filming near where my mum lived in at, just outside of Bath. And uh, one of the um, older actresses in the show, the wonderful Linda Bassett, she was um, she wanted to live outside of the city. And so they ended up renting her. My mum had turned her office into a little like Airbnb because she wasn't she wasn't working anymore. And uh, they end up renting this place for for Linda and she was so lovely and really like warm and friendly and she said to me you know come down to the set one day and I'll introduce you to the producer and um so I went down with her one day and we went I just sort of walked around and watched everything and I was like wow this is amazing I like all these all these incredible they built all of these incredible cottages and obviously they were just yeah. facades there was nothing behind them but they looked so real I was like oh my god I can't believe they built all these houses and you go inside and yeah. it's just a shell but there's nothing yeah <laughs> it's just like the dream is killed immediately as soon as you walk in <laughs> which is kind of an interesting um I suppose metaphor for producing because I think people think it's so glamorous all the time and it's just really not it's the facade it's total facade yeah behind the scenes it's just a bunch of sandbags yeah yeah exactly exactly um and that's how I got my first job because I I you know I I got the producer's email address and I and bless her Annie Tricklebank from the BBC and she you know you you name any big period uh period drama from the UK called the midwife the night watch uh crimson field like she, upstairs downstairs she's produced them and she um wow yeah she was wonderful and I emailed her like <laughs> repeatedly for about two weeks every other day which now maybe not be acceptable but um trying to get her to give me an internship and I think she eventually emailed me back and said if you stop filling up my inbox I will I will give you an internship on the show I want to dive into this because a lot of people listening they, they they hear about the hustle and you got to like advocate for yourself and you cold email people and nowadays it's so much easier than it's ever been to find someone's contact info so I, I do think there is a very particular finesse to being like a squeaky wheel and being someone who is persistent but professional and not annoying <laughs> to the point where that person wants to block you and you're just like, you know, just too much. So it's such a fine line. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. What if I know it's like hard to describe it, but what, what do you think it was about your approach that made her ultimately respond? Yeah. I think it's such a tough question to ask, isn't it? I think um, it's really, I don't know. I mean, I think just being passionate and enthusiastic and also tailoring, obviously 
you know, not making it seem like you've sent this email to a hundred people and you don't really care about what that specific person has done or is doing. And yeah. And, you know, showing interest and engaging them, I I found always the best way is to actually approach people not asking for anything other than, you know, do you have 30 minutes to have a phone call with me or a cup of coffee? Can I buy you a coffee to to hear about your journey here, where you got to and, and, and hear like their experience? Because I think most people wouldn't turn down the opportunity to talk about themselves for half an hour. You know, people right. enjoy telling <laughs> telling that kind of story about how they got where they are especially in a business where you have to really fight to get where you are that's right um that's that's certainly like how just before I started Peach House that's certainly the approach that I took with you know I was in a position where I was a little bit unsure about what I wanted to do off the back of a movie that I worked on um called Teen Spirit and I Mm -hmm. was sort of thinking I wanted to go into development but then um didn't really think there was I, I sort of couldn't really find anywhere that was this, there was kind of creative synergy for me here and I and I just took the opportunity I took a few months off and I emailed every producer I could think of that I some I knew some I didn't know just anyone I you know respected and liked their work and uh, all heads of development at various companies and I met with so many people who all responded and said sure you know I'll have a coffee with you kind of thing which was really lovely and you I swiftly realized that every single person had a different story and a different journey I think there's just no one way to become a producer and right um and it was really interesting and really insightful hearing all of these very successful people you know telling me how they how they set their businesses up or how they got into their jobs and what they loved about it and what they didn't love about it and because I wasn't approaching it uh, you know from a place of please give me a job please hire me um, you know, it was much more of a relaxed conversation. Um, and I, you know, I had the luxury of, I had a job and producing commercials and music videos. So I, I had income. It's not, you know, I wasn't desperate. Yeah. I guess I wasn't desperate. Exactly. And, and I, I think that that can come across. So I think if you're cold emailing people, it's about, um, you're going to get the best response if you're offering them something who, right, who right. they don't need a cup of coffee, cup of coffee necessarily. But if you're, um, yeah, you're not trying to just get something from them other than, you know information I suppose and intel I think I think that was probably always my approach rather than being like please hire me I'm desperate for work I really want to get into this business because that email they probably get from a thousand people um whereas you know the email of I think what you specifically are doing is really interesting and I'd love to understand more about how you do it or got there and how you know how you're in your position that's more flattering to that person I suppose yeah so well and if you mean it if you actually if you mean mean it it, yeah yeah if you don't mean it it comes across then you're already (laughs) positioning yourself to to start a journey on onto something that you already have the interest Mm -hmm. in whether that's horror or you know whatever the thing may be and and that already kind of gets you a step ahead versus just anybody who's anybody who's carries the title producer should help me it's like being really specific I think it's the specificity of what you're saying that really makes people feel like oh like wow you really took the time to research Mm -hmm. this and to go out of your way to email me and we've Mm -hmm. all been there it's scary to email or call someone you don't know so exactly I I do think that people that just finesse their way into the little crevices it's like oh you got in here okay well let's talk then you know you have that finesse and that tact and that specificity but then you're consistent you know yeah 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 Yeah, exactly even with getting guests on this podcast I mean there are certain people I pursue for six months (laughs) before they're available you know 
Sure. I mean, like, who am I following? Lynette Hal Taylor. Like, she couldn't be a more impressive person. <laughs> Lynette was one of those people. She emailed me back the same day and was like, sure, let's set it up. She just gets it done. So there's also that, you know? She's phenomenal. I listened to her episode. I was like, wow. She's really incredible. <laughs> She's a lot of people's heroes, but. I know. It's like, why do I have to follow her? She's so scary. The great company. There's no competition. <laughs> it's just a bunch of incredible women. Exactly. Incre- you know, incredible people that you've had on it. I'm very humbled to be, to be part of it. To your point with Lynette's episode, there is such a theme of luck, mm-hmm. right right place, right time, knowing that one person that randomly knew the guy who was the cousin to the brother. And it's just like, you cannot create that for yourself. You can't. You just, you can't. It's one of those things. I, but it also, I think it's, you can in a way, because I think like, you can't create the luck, obviously. I mean, well, actually, I, I, my mom always used to tell me this phrase, you know, it's amazing how the harder you work, the luckier you become. Mm. Um, and I always, that always stayed with me. And I always remember that because I think there's so many people that go, oh God, you're so lucky. You just walked into that job. I'm like, no, I didn't. I I toiled at various other jobs to be able to get here. I didn't just like waltz in. And- so it's a garden, right? It's like, you're just constantly planting new seeds. Mm. A lot of them die. Some you forget about, some you actually mourn mm. and some just blossom. But yeah, it's like years and years in the making. And sometimes a seed yeah. you planted, you completely forgot about comes back around. Some would call it luck, but yeah. you know, it, it yeah. just depends on how you frame it. But I think you're right. Absolutely. It is, it is hard work. And I don't mean to take that away from anyone or Lynette, but like, no, no. you know, just like the way she even got started and, and the opportunities that opened for her, but she was ready. She was willing. She had that enthusiasm, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So there's also all of that. She could have been, oh gosh, like, I don't know how to do this. I'm just going to sit back. That's the thing. The kind of people that succeed at this are the kinds of people that lean into whatever mm-hmm. is happening around them where they can seize an opportunity. I think we are opportunists in a way. You kind of have to be, but not in a gross way, you know, it, to make the best of what's around you. And that is, I think, such a through line for producing 101. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you make the best version of whatever mm-hmm. you have within the confines of what's yeah. here now? You know, yeah. so and I think, but also I think it's important to remember that a lot of people don't have the skills to to you know to just pick up the phone and call someone yeah. and aren't confident enough to do that or to send a cold email. You know, it's, they're not confident enough to 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 do that. I'm doing this. Um, there's a, a company here called Creative Access that's a really brilliant um, platform for getting uh, people from underrepresented groups into not just film and television, but um, literary theatre, anything creative. And uh, they have a program called Set Access, which I'm part of at the moment. That's a constant sort of rolling mentorship program. And um, I think they're looking for more people. So shout out if anyone wants to do it. Um, They pair kind of anyone, producers, directors, writers, production coordinators, anyone who's in the industry, they pair you with a uh, a mentee and you do kind of monthly sessions where you focus on whatever the mentee wants to focus on. And I've been working with my mentee a lot about... um, a lot on approaching people like cold approaching people and how to widen a network if you don't have one and where you start and I think like it's really scary for some people who don't um necessarily yeah who don't necessarily feel totally comfortable talking to strangers and who don't um feel comfortable sending an email bigging themselves up because that's also what you have to do isn't it you have to like find a really delicate yeah. non-arrogant way to say hey I'm wonderful look at me like look at my CV instead of all the hundreds of other people that you've been you know approached by and yeah I think it's important I think that that's one thing that the industry should be more open to and I think it definitely is moving in that direction certainly here and I'm sure in the US as well but just being more open to 
people you know just getting in touch as you say it's easy to find email addresses online and stuff now you know we have our email addresses and mobile numbers on our website because it's the whole company approach is accessibility so um I it's really important that people can just pick up the phone and ring me and I'll have I'll have a if I have time I'll have a conversation with a stranger about like you know if they're interested in the film I mean within reason I'm not like having you know daily chats with total strangers about random things but I mean you know if, if somebody wants to pick up the phone and ask my opinion on something or ask for advice like you know they can and I think that that um needs to be a bit more of a, a thing that's cultivated because if you don't have any connections or you don't have you know of, yeah a dad who's worked in film or who whatever it's, it's it can be really really difficult to get in or if you're not as you were saying lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time like I was and get you know get a chance to be a intern on a BBC set and then they're thereby intern on another show and you know thereby when I left university I'd done enough internships that I could actually get a paid job as a production assistant if you yeah if you don't have that luck and that luxury then um you know it's really hard and also financially, it's really hard as well. Yeah, financially, it's it, we'll get to that. But what's the <laughs> short advice that you give to your mentee then on 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 in teaching someone how to do this? Right. Um, I mean, it's a really good question. I'm learning as I go because I, it's the first time I've been a mentor. <laughs> like, it's still find I still sort of find it funny that somebody thinks of me as a mentor. But anyway, <laughs> it's just about I, I I've just spent a lot of time like building their confidence and in themselves and in what they want to do and you know, asking like questions like, okay, what are five things that you really like about yourself? What are five things that you think you're really good at? And and trying to then like weave those qualities into a cover letter and a covering email and sort of like focus on how to how to write the perfect cold email essentially and perfect cover letter. Because I think also it's really hard when, you know, uh, if you're not someone who's naturally self-confident, it's very difficult to, you know, you might think of it as bragging about yourself for example but you have to you have to reframe that and think no I'm just sharing what I value in myself with other people um, so that they can see the value in me but also wording that in an eloquent way is really difficult crazy right because it really is it's like if you feel confidence even if it's you know an inflated self sense of (laughs) self it can be enough to kind of get you going I mean I know that when I was younger I definitely did not have the confidence but I projected it as such yeah right fake it till you make it (laughs) right I mean but I think I think the fake it till you make it it can be misleading to younger people and that it means that you have to lie and it's not that you're lying it's just that some part of you knows that you have the know-how to figure it out or that Mm -hmm. you can be in a place and watch and learn by, by Mm -hmm. seeing or by doing, and then you just need to get access to that. But yeah, it's until you get opportunities to even be in those spaces that you know that. But I remember when I was coming up, like when I was a kid, especially because, you know, I came to this country, I didn't speak English. I remember like even calling to order pizza, like made me nervous. Mm -hmm. Just the thought of speaking to a stranger on the phone Mm -hmm. was like incredibly Mm -hmm. nerve wracking. But the way I kind of trained myself is I would, when I would be in situations that were low stakes for me, for example, like yeah. if there was ever a Q&A, right, and I was in the audience, I would purposely put my hand up because it made me so nervous 
to get called on, like in a classroom or right, a right, Q&A. Right. Oh, so and I would have my hand up and I would be rehearsing the question in my head the whole time. My heart rate would go up <laughs> and, and then I would forget the question. You know, it was like, I don't know why I would get that like nervous about it because I was so excited to actually be there, you mm-hmm. know, and, and whatever, mm-hmm. engaging in that, whatever that thing was. Mm-hmm. But I just would get in my own head. And so what I often tell people is like, if you practice with lower stakes for you, then when yeah. the bigger opportunities come, it's not that you won't still feel anxiety or fear, you'll just have a little better way of navigating right. that within yourself in that moment of like, oh my God, I'm in an elevator with this mm-hmm. person. I want right. to strike up a conversation, but I don't want to be a total weirdo. How do I, how do I make this out? How do I come across like a normal human and not a robot? You know, yeah. um, it really is baby yeah. steps that ultimately like cumulatively get you to a place where you can just call up somebody and it is such a learned skill. It's so interesting, but it, I think you're right. The root of it really comes down to confidence. But everyone has that though. There are some people like, you know, there's always going to be someone that you have that with, that I have that with, that you have that with. That feeling just never goes away. There's always someone who's intimidating. Yeah. But I think also one thing I always try and remember is that like, it's okay to take a breath and wait to answer. You don't have to jump straight in. You don't, you know, I even did it before this interview. I was like thinking, God, I I hope I don't say anything stupid. You know, (laughs) it's fine to just take a beat and think about it. You don't have to just jump straight in. That's another thing I've said to my mentee about interviews you know you know count to count to three in your head if you like you know quickly but count to three in your head if you don't have the right answer and think about it or say like I'll come back to that later that's interesting I'll come back to that in a bit but um yeah I think so many people feel the need to fill a silence as well um yeah yeah definitely but being in an elevator with somebody and being like oh I really wish I could say something I was um that happened to me actually once I was in an elevator with Chris Hemsworth and I was like I really want to say something but you're too gorgeous I can't say anything to you did you say anything you just stared at him (laughs) nothing (laughs) he actually said uh, he he was with his um this is now a, a story I wasn't intending on telling but he was with his personal trainer and we'd just both been in the same gym his trainer said something about how he'd saved my life because he'd stopped the lift doors from closing in my face and I was like yeah, yeah. and then just sort of awkwardly looked down at my phone and didn't say anything else for the duration of the very awkward long journey down I love that I had not a not an elevator story but a quick sidebar story I once was um doing post it was color correcting a a documentary at this company here in Los Angeles. And it was at overnight. It was like, you know, they were donating these services to us. So the only time they could fit us in was like at midnight. So we park, it's like a rooftop park. And, you know, I going in, there's like these doors before you get to the elevator. And I go to open the door and there's a man on the other side. And we're both like, you know, playing tug of war with the door. And then the man like opens the door for me. And then I look up and it's Ryan Gosling. And he's just like, ah, (laughs) And I just stared at him and he's like, are you going to come inside? And I was like, yes, yes, I am. Uh I'm coming. I'm entering this building. Thank you. And it was just unexpected. It was so unexpected. And I think living in Los Angeles, I don't get very starstruck, but when you're so, and you're just like living your life and you're not in an environment where you expect Mm. to see someone Mm -hmm. that famous and then you bump into them, it's just like, it really catches you off guard. And there are certain people that just sparkle. They just have some aura about them I don't know what it is and Ryan Gosling is definitely one of those people the aura thing is a really weird thing that's a really strange phenomenon that I don't understand where that comes from because it's absolutely true I mean there's you know there are certain people that just sparkle and if you you know and if you meet even if if you meet them in real life you're like I don't understand how do you have this sort of 
superhuman glow around you that it's, it's just weird it's not even about beauty necessarily no. there's just like something about their energy that you truly are just like drawn into yeah. them yeah you're just yeah. like you just want to stare at them you know and that's why they're on screen because that's, yeah. that's why they walk down the street like this because people are just going ah and staring at them every time <laughs> yeah they're like i just want to go to the store and everybody's <laughs> just like fainting and even imagine that like if every day of your life you just open a door to a building and there's going to be some woman on the other side just like like, yeah. like just swooning I mean, the price know. the price you pay for being an actor i suppose but yeah yeah i suppose i suppose but anyway now that we're done talking about how fancy we are as producers <laughs> sharing elevators and meetings yeah I mean, I mean that's definitely not the tone of this podcast in any stretch like, we're fancy we share elevators with really famous attractive men <laughs> well that's what people think we do so, so exactly. for those listening yeah there are moments literal seconds of our lives yeah. where we intersect with famous people um if we're not working with them yeah. and that's it and then we go back into our priuses and back into our you know studio apartments in hollywood and send cold emails to people asking them to hire us or back into our really unattractive trailers on set where yeah. everything's brown and yeah. that's right that's right okay such a digression that's my bad but very important i think the listeners will enjoy these fun tidbits it's a bit of banter it's you know, just fun it? um, but i want to go back to so back to you cool. so then you start interning and then you freelance for a while before you yeah. kind of start to find your footing what would you say was the first experience you had where you were like oh wow this is I'm producing I'm a producer this is this is it like I'm doing the thing uh I I mean the first experience I, I had an amazing opportunity given to me by a brilliant man called Michael Robinson who used to be uh, the CFO of Luke Rogue's company, Independent Sales, is a film sales agency here. And um, he left uh, Independent to start his own production company, which was uh, then, then called MGR, and it's now Factor Six Films. And um, he, it was just him. He just left to start on his own. And he, he had worked on films like Mr. Nice and We Need to Talk About Kevin and um, some really, you know, really, really great independent films. And, and, um, and he gave me an opportunity. He he hired me as his assistant, his development assistant, basically. And he had an empty slate, and we helped, we developed his slate from the ground from nothing. Um, and it was, you know, he had no reason to take a chance on me. He was introduced to me by a, a casting director called Debbie McWilliams, who, again, I met through a friend, and it was just all that kind of like connections, networking situation as this business always is. Um, and. And he wasn't even going to hire an assistant. And we met and we got along really well. And then he sort of said, okay, you know, come in and, and be my assistant. And it was a really um, amazing. I worked for him for a year. And that was an amazing experience because he had come from sales and finance. And he really, like, taught me how, you know, a recruitment schedule works and how film sales works and how independent financing works and um and and all that stuff that is so useful now and is actually quite complicated to learn or can be complicated to learn and he just made it so simple um and was so like you know giving with his time and energy and and um and also you know would bring me into meetings with writers and filmmakers and you know wanted my opinion on everything I read everything we did everything together and it was that like yeah he was a, a wonderful person to work with and he's now actually exec producing one of our films which is great so the relationship has continued but he um you know, he was one of those people that I think uh, it, he gave me a lot of responsibility and he trusted me a lot and and he had no reason to because it was, you know, my first proper job out of university and 
he you know he didn't know me from Adam but it was amazing um yeah yeah that I think you know so much of this job is learning by osmosis and you know learning by watching other people do what they're doing other more experienced people and and you know he you know I brought a book to him that I wanted to option and and that I'd been really passionate about and he read it and he said great well we'll option it together and you know you can run the show and I'll just oversee it and I was like this is mad why are you you know (laughs) why and it was just having that it's so amazing when you have those people that have that faith in you and that trust in you and and um you know so that was the real probably the really the first job that I had that was like you know this is this is something that I definitely want to do and I I you know I knew I wanted to do it before that and I knew I loved it and um but that was the kind of cementing thing um, and then I left him after a year and I went to work for 42 for Ben Q and Rory Aitken um who run the production side of the management and production company um and that was a you know incredible baptism of fire because they had they were about a year into the company when I joined and it was sort of all hands on deck the team was quite small and they're now massive so they've done such incredible work in the last eight or nine years I think it's been since they've been going um and you know I was assistant to Ben and Rory and then also you know working for the head of television who just just started Eleanor Moran at the time and then kind of you know doing production coordinating on some of the films and post like helping the post supervisor on four films and and you know and also kind of trying to keep on top of the development slate and everything and it so it was just a little bit of everything and um yeah and I you know I learned a huge amount and I met my now business partner George Monklin there because she was one of the agents well one of the managers sorry I should say on the management side um and we became firm friends and now like years later here we are running a company together so I think definitely a firm believer in you know everything happens for a reason and you you know you do yeah you, you get pulled into things unexpectedly and there's always a positive that comes out of everything and um and I that that was an amazing company to work for and you know obviously George and I both loved working there because we've pretty much founded our own management and production company in their mirror image so that way I was there for like about three and just over three maybe three years I was there um and I left there to go and work for Yorgos Lanthimos, which I was offered a job on his film, The Favourite, and helping rap post on Killing of a Sacred Deer. And I loved him as a filmmaker, obviously. I mean, who doesn't? But he's, yeah, um, he's incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, I got that phone call to go and meet him. And I was like, um, I remember turning to Ben, who I'd told and said I was going to leave because there wasn't any sort of upward progression available at the time at 42. And I sort of felt like I'd reached the end of my <laughs> grown out of the role. And I, you know, I said to Ben, I've been offered to go and meet Yorgos. And Ben was like, go. If I'd been, you know, go now, if I'd been offered that opportunity at, you know, at your stage, at your age, I would have just leapt at it. Done, so yeah. um, they were always so supportive. Yeah, I went to work with Yorgos on The Favourite and, you know, had an incredible time because obviously he's an incredible filmmaker and um it was an amazing film to work on just one of those one of those experiences where everyone was you know it was just a joyous set you know I think I think made that way partly by the fact that you know Olivia Coleman and Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz and all the cast were so wonderful and you know Olivia would walk onto set and say hello to everybody by name like grips gaffers everybody like she knew everyone and I think like that just cultivates such a yeah great atmosphere well, especially when you know these people are all slaving away and working to make you look good and it just shows the yes. kind of brilliant person she is that she had yes, made yes. so much effort to get to know everyone and and that was just yeah it was so much fun and Yorgos is like sort of very playful almost theatrical way of directing the actors is just such an incredible thing to watch and um you know seeing him rehearse with them and everything was just yeah it was such a, a 
joyous thing and such an insight um into how he into how he functions and and yeah yeah that was just an incredible experience and then um went on to teen spirit just directly off the back of that with fred Berger, who just called me and said i need a i need a producer to help in in london with max's film do you want to with max Miguel's film was that his directorial debut yeah it was his directorial debut yeah it was yeah yeah so he'd written the script with um jamie bell and who exec produced it and and then max directed and fred produced fred and brian camera jones that automatic produced it and um and yeah, and they just needed a sort of like on the ground helping hand. And again, another person who, um, you know, much like Michael, much like Ben, who trusted me, you know, implicitly when they didn't really need to, but just gave me a lot of responsibility and um, it gave me the opportunity to to sort of flex my muscles, feels like yeah. a weird thing to say, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like, um, yeah, just gave me the opportunity to 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 experience things and to do things and to learn from them and watch them and and you yeah. know um I learned so much from being on set with both Ben and with Fred and like yeah. they're such brilliant producers and I think like watching watching them doing what they do and one thing I always admired so much about Ben is the fact that he um he's always so calm you know mm. regardless of if if there's something really drastic and horrible going wrong he's just so calm and still and he doesn't let anything it doesn't he doesn't look like he's riled at all and that's one thing I've always tried to like emulate in in in, in how I work it's like that <laughs> that crazy kind of you know duck duck legs underwater like paddling like mad yes. and then on the surface <laughs> you're just super chilled because the second you start losing your mind everyone else freaks out oh yeah it's bad I mean I've been on those sets where the producer in charge was like throwing things and oh, it's just to your point like you I, I I say this a lot on the show but I do very strongly believe this after most of my experience being in physical mm. production that I don't know how you cultivate a safe workplace and a, a place for creativity to blossom if you're running your set based on fear or based on like a negative emotion yeah. yet you know obviously many many things have been many stories have been told many great movies have been told without that yeah. and then you go and you read about it and they say the conditions were horrible everybody was fighting behind the scenes but it looked like an incredible yeah. project but nowadays I think this there's a shift of like really creating a workplace that in this conversation of inclusivity and diversity and really creating a space for for that to blossom I, I think mm-hmm. it's it's night and day honestly it really is yeah. um, and I think people just naturally then go that extra mile for you because they just feel mm-hmm. like they really are a part of a community and they want to you know just work harder um so it's it's a win-win all around it's also you know people always say you know the best directors are those people who've been worked in various different departments and understand all of the crew I think the best producers are the same you know like if you you know you have to understand what everybody else is doing so that you can understand why they might be stressed or why something might go wrong for them And, and you know that's part of the reason I wanted to go and work for Yorgos was because I'd never really spent much time on like oh a full film shoot on a film set before I did the favorite yeah what was your biggest takeaway at that time after that experience with him oh god aside from just how you know brilliant he is as a filmmaker but in terms of brilliant he was yeah yeah aside from how amazing he is um just again cultivating that atmosphere that 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 kind of warm friendly environment and you know always making everybody feel respected and 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 important regardless of if they're the they're the runner they're the caterers they're the dop whoever it is just like making sure that everybody feels like they know that without 
you know, without their cog in the machine, the machine wouldn't be functioning because, and it is that, that familial environment, you know, you become family with these people because you don't see your own family for six to nine months or however long it is that you're working on something. And it's so intense. And I think that's why often it's a really brilliant experience, but I'm sure why often for some, in some instances, it can be a very stressful experience if there's a negative environment that you're in and you're just stuck there. I've had a few of those that are very rough. It's rough, but I do think it makes you cherish the ones that are great even more so. And for me anyway, it really solidified in my journey. Like, yeah, I'm never going to be like that. And the moment I am become that way, I'm I'm not going to do this anymore because it's no longer fun and I'm not yeah. showing up as my best self and I'm not going to be a good leader yeah. or effective. And what's the point? Like, just join corporate America. It's definitely easier. yeah Yeah, well I mean that's the thing you you don't work in this industry because you know you can earn a quick buck or it's easy to get into or it's easy to progress in you know you do it because it's a vocation and you couldn't imagine doing anything else yeah if it stops being enjoyable stops being fun stop yes of course you have to work hard and you have to you know learn things and you have to challenge yourself and face up to challenges that you'll set but but if you're not enjoying it and you're not working with like-minded good people at the end of the day there's no point in doing it because also you know you're making you're making movies it's not open heart surgery it's meant to be fun you know right and speaking of of working with good people I'd love to talk a little bit about Peach House and how that came to be and working with George and and um all of that so tell us how that came to fruition because you were very honest with me earlier about not really wanting to be a lit manager and how that (laughs) was something that you didn't really think you'd want to do don't tell the client or enjoy but (laughs) here's a plot twist to clients and listeners she does she loves it but tell us (laughs) (laughs) she loves it so Peach House came about because I had so off the back of Teen Spirit, I started Peach Pictures as a production company purely initially just to uh, to be able to apply to the BFI for development finance for a film with this brilliant filmmaker, Laura Kirwan Ashman, um, whose feature first feature film I'm producing uh, called Lit. And we, um, you know, I, I, I love the film. I met her and I, you know, I, I took it under sh- with a shopping option from her agents at 42, actually. and um, and said, you know, I'll set it up with some development finances and we got it in with the BFI. And then, you know, that was the reason I started the company. And then off the back of that, I was, you know, I started finding some other young filmmakers that I wanted to work with and developing a slate and then ended up kind of meeting um, Stephen Garrett, who um, runs a company called Character 7 and it just produced The Undoing and or just exec produced The Undoing, I should say. And, um, uh, and you know, we ended up, developers starting to develop a television show together and so this slate kind of like naturally grew and I was kind of thinking well if people want to work with me like maybe I should just try this and see if I can do it you know I'm young enough hopefully that if it goes tits up I can do something else (laughs) afterwards um and so I was producing commercials and music videos on the side to try and you know keep food on the table because obviously producers get nothing in development so that's right as we all know and um and was kind of trying to do that but then obviously trying to develop a slate of projects and actually give my time and energy to them whilst also having to like produce branded content music videos commercials which are obviously you know baby films but just so fast paced and such a quick turnaround actually takes so much energy for three weeks to a month of your life that 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 month you know none of the films are getting any attention because you're working on a car advert yeah. or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, so I found that really, really difficult. And, and you know, I ended up taking a full-time in-house assisting job at a, comp- at a production company 
um, which wasn't something I really wanted to do because I felt like it was a step back, but I just needed some sort of solid income. And I thought, you know, doing a, a more junior level job, that's something I've done before for years. And like, I can, I can do this and then easily, and then I can do, keep my slate going on the side. And they were very flexible about me having this, you know, company and running it and, um, but anyway, obviously that didn't work out either because as everybody who's been an assistant knows, it's crazy and full on. And, um, so yeah, so I ended up, uh, leaving there and, um, and just, you know, keeping going with the commercials and everything and just, uh, as sort of doing as few as I could and just living off the money that I had and, and trying to keep, get the projects going and comes back to the point of that everything happens for a reason, because if I hadn't have taken that assistant job, I wouldn't have been at Toronto Film Festival where Teen Spirit, Spirit was premiering. And I wouldn't have got to um, meet with again and hang out and spend time with Sarah Curran and Peter Sussman, who are now the backers of Peach House and the reason that Peach House exists. Yeah, Sarah was an amazing woman. Um, you know, she's she's yeah incredible. She ran her own production legal firm for years. Um, and uh you know she was the md of james grant and she she you know has been a consultant for everyone i mean mgm and used to work at working title and um i'm probably missing heaps of her credits but she's <laughs> she's she's an incredible woman and a very um important part of peach house and she started a company called tricycle media and tricycle talent and invests in both management companies and across all different creative industries so they have a, a literary agency and sports agency and football agency and um and you know us and a voiceover agency and and you know and all of we're all a sort of very happy family and everybody within tricycle are all wonderful and so we're encouraged to kind of cross pollinate and help each other where we can which is a really lovely um atmosphere and lovely thing to be a part of yeah. Yeah. Sarah's whole ethos is kind of like taking, you know, helping people that she believes in and, and giving them a little bit of startup money to 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 set something up on their own. And then she's she chairs each company. She's the chairman of Peach House and an incredible advisor. And, um, you know, we we rely on her for so many different things because she she just knows everybody and has like such incredible insight from her experience. Um, I was in Los Angeles before Toronto Film Festival and she sent me a really lovely message on uh, Instagram and said oh I see you're in LA do you want to get a drink and I'd you know I didn't know anyone in LA apart from people I was working with so it was very nice to be very nice to be contacted and invited for a drink and um and I hadn't really seen we'd we crossed paths a little bit on the favorite because she put the financing and casting together for that film but had only really known each other properly when I was at 42 and um yeah we met and had a drink and she was so lovely and took loads of interest in what I was doing in the peach picture slate and I showed her all like a deck of projects and yeah. and then she introduced me to Peter and um and you know uh we ended up I ended up having dinner with them in Toronto and continued to the conversation and then came back to London and she just would check in with me and see how I was doing and was very like kindly helping me trying to raise some development money for the company and kind of said look it can't be something that tricycle would come on board because it we're investing in management companies not in production companies and um I introduced her to George who was had set up on her own um after taking a year off and um and I thought could really benefit with the support because she was obviously setting up a new management company on your own is pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah was the one who said to George and I, well, this is mad. I mean, why don't you two partner up? Because you're really good friends. You've worked together for years. And if you partner, then I can invest in both of you and back both of you. Amazing. <laughs> so yeah, so we sort of thought, well, that seems like a really good idea. Not sure why we didn't think of that ourselves. Um, 
Sarah and George was were saying to me, like, look, we've got we've got talent, we've got the actors, you've got this production slate, we should bridge the gap and you should represent writers and directors. And and I initially, as you rightly said, was a little bit like reticent to to do that and and didn't know if it was something I would like or I was good at, or if it would detract from mm-hmm. producing side of it. And you know, and Sarah really encouraged me and said, well, you know, you're working with all these early stage first, second time filmmakers that you, some of whom I was kind of finding and introducing them to other agents that I knew because they weren't represented or introducing them around to other production companies and kind of bigging them up and essentially doing some of the job of what being their agent or manager would actually be, yeah. you know, just not capitalizing on it. So it seemed like a, it seemed like a good idea, absolutely, from a sort of financial perspective. But in terms of me doing it I I just was unsure if I would really enjoy it that much to be totally honest and I'd always thought producing is the thing for me that's what I want to do I want to be on set I want to be making films I want to be you know developing shows and um and actually like you know I love it because I get to the whole kind of the whole USP of the company is working with young up and up and coming talent and finding young up and coming talent supporting them from you know, from the ground up, some of my clients have made like one short film, but I just really believe in them. And it would know with the right amount of kind of support, they'll get where they want to go. And and that was always what we wanted to do. We wanted to make this kind of bespoke, very hands-on company that really tailors their approach to each person and, and really creatively guides them and, and doesn't force them into anything that they don't want to do, but, you know, hopefully advises them appropriately. And right. But yeah, be really hands-on. And I think, I guess, coming from a producing point of view or coming from a development point of view that's an interesting thing about having me as a manager because I'm coming at their work from two different perspectives it's two for the price of one potentially one could say yeah certainly feels like it sometimes <laughs> <laughs> well because there's a lot of in the states there's a lot of managers who don't like to produce their clients work they have no interest um, they hate producing and then there are some managers who are you know, very instrumental in getting those projects set up. And once it's greenlit and you go into production, I've been on a series of projects where the manager then becomes a producer and, you know, kind of visits set here and there, but not, isn't running point on production, but is very closely involved. And it has raised this question of like managers who then become producers and get the producer title. Is that this, is that fair? Because then there's, you know, the producers who are doing the physical work of making the movie, but one could argue that without that manager, you would not have gotten the movie to be greenlit in the first place. So, um, so yeah, I'm curious if, if there's similarities with how it works in the UK or generally how it all kind of comes together. I mean, I think obviously it's slightly, um, slightly different for us in terms of, you know, I'm doing the job of manager and agent, you know, and lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know I do all the clients contracts I negotiate their deals I pitch them out for work and jobs and solicitate solicit work for them but also kind of creatively guide them as well so so there's no delineation there because like here obviously there's a big differentiation between agents are allowed to negotiate legally on behalf and managers are not and then half the time agents have very base baseline understanding of legal but then there's you know obviously you have a lawyer on your team as well so there's effectively three people but so it sounds like in the UK there's no delineation I think you know with um Mm. so no I mean I think you know like certainly you would only have one person here if you were managed by Peach House you wouldn't then be represented by Independent or Curtis Brown or United or any of the other agencies if you same thing if you're managed by 42 you wouldn't be represented by any of the other agencies and I think yeah so there's no delineation in terms of of that and obviously at the bigger companies they have in-house business affairs and 
we're much smaller so I tend to do it myself and right. like I said before love negotiating so I, I, I relish I relish that bit <laughs> what do you love about negotiating um no, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, maybe saying you love negotiating is actually not the best because it <laughs> maybe comes across as I like to argue with people, but that's not what I interpret when you say that. I think it's just using that side of my brain. I enjoy, you know, using the kind of strategic yeah. side of my brain and thinking, how can I get the best for the client out of this? And also, I think that's interesting coming from a producing point of view because if the producer I'm negotiating with, I, I'm thinking, I can think in their brain and in my brain, you know, I might, I might know that what they're asking for is completely fair but obviously I have to push back because I'm representing the client but in, in my head if I was doing the deal and I was them I would be asking for the same thing so I think it gives a good right a good balance reading contracts it's a weird thing to say you enjoy but there you go <laughs> hey it is not weird at all we need people who enjoy that that's really important and I'm sure um, your clients who hopefully will be listening will be glad to hear that you enjoy well, doing fingers that fingers crossed yeah I yeah. mean I, I think that's important because it's the non-sexy parts of the right. underbelly of just the nitty-gritty day-to-day stuff that mm-hmm. is very much a big part of producing as well like business affairs yeah. legal I was actually talking to another producer friend just yesterday that she was saying when she was in school that was her favorite class because she's yeah. like, where else am I going to learn this? And most yeah. of us have to learn just because you're in the trenches and now mm-hmm. you have to learn how to read a contract and you figure it out. But mm-hmm. if you can go into it already enjoying it, I think that... I think it's because there's a there's a, there's a a sort of a clear answer. Mm. It's one of the only bits of, of the job that is logical and it's it's almost a bit more like mathematical. You know, there's a, there's a clear answer. There are specific clauses that you know you can get through and 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 it's sort of like you know what to ask for and what you're going what you can really achieve I guess it's 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 kind of the quite cleanness of it in a way because everything else is a little bit subjective Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting I think it's an important thing to talk about because a lot of people fear negotiating women especially right it's notoriously (sighs) women don't know how to self-advocate so especially when it comes to when you're starting out and negotiating for yourself, even if it's your ERPA and you've maybe been doing it for a long time and you just want to ask for an extra yeah. dollar an hour, um, the fear that people have with yeah. that. So I, I think what you're saying is important. And if you have any tidbits for those who are like trying to yeah. sink their teeth into getting uh, understanding mm-hmm. this part of the process, like maybe they too can find something about it that is something yeah. to be excited about of the challenge of the puzzle mm-hmm. of the equation versus like this mm-hmm. fear of whatever they create in their minds you know about it yeah I mean I always just ask questions if I don't understand something and I think look so so many people fear asking questions because they think it makes them look weak whereas in actual fact I think it makes you look stronger if you're just you know confident enough to say I haven't, haven't got a clue what this means please tell me or I, I don't understand the wording here. Can you explain in, in more detail? Whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I also try to always like minimize the redlining, something that Sarah taught me because sending back a document that's just covered in redline is always really intimidating and it's all yeah, it's yeah. gonna get somebody off on a bad foot immediately. <laughs> um and and I think just, you know, I guess I think of it as more of a challenge. I make it fun because I think of it as like, you know, if I can get here then I've won, you know, in yeah. a way. it sounds silly, but it's kind of like thinking of it as thinking of it as a fun challenge as opposed to something to be intimidated by. Mm. And also like you always have to get to yes. Like my goal is always to get to a yes or get to an agreement. Right. I don't want to get in the way of closing a deal. And I certainly don't want to make the producer who whose position I have been in at one point or another have a terrible time. 
I want to get the best for my client. Yeah. Equally, I want to close the deal as quickly and efficiently and painlessly as possible because I think sometimes people drag that stuff out for months and months. Like, come on, it's really not that hard. Like, that comes back to the producing thing because I think so much about so much of producing and managing is about reading people. You can really tell when someone is like they're drawing their bottom line and they're saying, you know, you can't go any higher or like this is really a no. Right, right, right. So I want to switch gears for a bit because so much of the show I personally really love to talk about because I'm a martyr perhaps or a masochist I don't know, because <laughs> it's been such a journey for me of almost 15 years of being seeped in this business and having pockets of it where my self-worth was really tied to my producing identity, right? And like what I was doing and the kinds of projects I was getting and Am I always leveling up or am I sort of like laterally moving every time? And of course, that's still there because we're hungry. We want to do the next thing. But um, but yeah, I'm just curious, like how you've navigated that and if there's been any particular challenge that, you know, you've you've overcome. I mean, yeah, navigating self-worth is, is really hard. And I think... <sighs> I think you just have to be kind to yourself as well in this business because mm. it's sort of, you know, 90% of the time you need to expect that, you know, you're going to be disappointed. Like when you go out to an actor for a film, they're probably going to say no. And the financiers are probably going to say no for something, you know, and it's, yeah. it's just that, but that 10% is so gratifying and so great <laughs> that it's worth, it's worth keeping going for. Yeah. And that's right. It's just, you just have to be, you just have to, I guess be com comfortable in your own skin. I think that's certainly something that I found took a long time to get there for me because, you know, I again like especially when you're assisting um, producers and and uh, it can be really hard and it can be like because it's so demanding and you know yeah. if you're not doing it, there are a thousand other people queuing up that will take the job if you're not doing it well enough. And that kind of pressure is is really, really stressful. Yeah. You know, I think I remember at 42 when I was working on a film, I think I was tired and I, I'd messed something up in like the end roller of a film. And it meant that they had to open up the DCP and, you know, redo the credits. And that was probably going to cost a, a, a whack. And it was completely my fault. And and I remember Ben saying to me, you know, um, don't worry about it. It's fine. It's not like it's, you know, I'm the producer. It's my responsibility. And I felt so terrible. And and I always thought um you know I always thought highly of him anyway but I thought even more highly of him after that because it's like that's and and I learned that then you know that as the producer you have to take responsibility you know you're the senior person like anything is your fault even if it's not something you've directly done essentially yeah I think in terms of self-care and looking after yourself it's really important to take time for yourself you know I I mean, I say this, but obviously it's hard. It's easier said than done. You know, I, I try not to look at my phone after a certain time in the evening. But then if you're actually working on a film or something, that's nigh on impossible. Yeah. You know, I try and make sure I exercise and have some time for myself and take a bath if I really want one or yeah. not beat myself up if I have an afternoon where actually I'm not feeling that productive. So I'm going to, you know, take a break and read a script or take a break. Well, that's still work, isn't it? But take a break. And <laughs> that's every producer. Like I'm, I'm going to take time. I'm downtime. <laughs> I'm just break slightly read reading script. three yeah. scripts and giving notes and watching a cut of this. I know. <laughs> I know. It's so hilarious. I get to the weekend. I'm like, God, my reading list is so long because the clients have delivered material, which is brilliant. Obviously keep delivering guys, but <laughs> I'll just, you know, spend the afternoon on Saturday reading some stuff. And then you realize like the whole day is gone and you've just been basically working all day. But I'm like, fine it's fun it's the fun bit of the job <laughs> yeah it's so much of it is doesn't feel like work a lot of the times like yeah. the fun parts of it that I think it's easy to just 
do it nonstop, nonstop. But yeah, I think yeah. more importantly, like, what is it that fills your energetic spiritual well, right? So that you can show up and be all all that you can and need to be for yourself and for your clients to have the stamina to keep it going. So what is that for you? Um, um, cooking, like I find cooking really therapeutic and relaxing and mm. Uh, my partner and I are obsessed with MasterChef, so we watch it, you know, <laughs> religiously and try and come up with our own signature dishes and uh, <laughs> probably not as good as the ones on MasterChef. But, At least you're doing it. But yeah, I think food, spending time with my friends, you know, obviously hard in the pandemic, but just going for a walk with my, you know, I'm really lucky. My best friend lives down the road and, you know, we can go for a walk together or yeah. going for a walk with George. And even if we're talking about work, just like, getting out in the fresh air and find at the moment it's really difficult and I'm sure everyone's the same because you spend so much time on on your phone on or on zoom yeah. on screen that then the prospect of facetiming or calling your friend in the evening is that which would be an enjoyable thing it's just exhausting because it's just another call and I, that yeah. sounds so bad but no I I feel that the weird thing is that in normal life I mean you know if we were in the office I'd be like probably meeting clients for a drink after work or I'd be going out with a friend or going to a movie or whatever and maybe have you know plans most nights of the week or at least several nights during the week and somehow still have the energy to get up and do it again the following day yeah yeah I think also just the, the important thing I always try and remind myself and remind friends and colleagues and people who have similar situations especially at the moment it's just like be kind to yourself if you feel unproductive or you feel like you're not having a good day or just you know take a break take an hour off go for a walk yeah sit in the sun if there is sun um there was today in London for the first time <laughs> the problem with the whole being at home the whole time is like you you get to after dinner and you think oh god I forgot that email I'm, I'll just send it quickly now so you just never really have the time to switch off you know I I was talking to a very dear producer friend the other day who said she went into the office for the first time and as long as she can remember for the day came home and actually didn't look at her phone and you know had a pizza and watched like six episodes of the flight attendant back to back and didn't think about work <laughs> like you know and 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 just was like what an enjoyable evening and I haven't looked at my phone for you know how many hours and then yeah went to sleep woke up the following day and actually felt refreshed whereas she didn't before so hard to yeah. switch off yeah yeah you're just plugged in the whole time yeah absolutely I've started doing this like lightning round where it's just five quick questions to kind of wrap it up okay <laughs> What's a song that teleports you to a happy place? Thin Lizzy. What latest piece of art that moved you? It could be a film, a book, a show, etc. I recently watched The Leftovers uh, in full, which I hadn't seen before. Um, and I just thought it was absolutely genius. I thought it was really amazing to see genuine, real people just being sad and angry at the world and what life had served them. Um, and yeah, it just felt so real. And the final episode was really moving. When I'm overworked, blank helps fill the stress. Uh, <laughs> wine. <laughs> Switching my phone off and just spending time with my friends and partner. What is one of the most worthwhile investments you ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. I mean, in, in Peach House, probably. In myself and in George and believing in us. Okay, and final question. <laughs> Borrowing from Inside the Actor's Studio, which was inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pivot. Mm -hmm. I love this question. I've always wanted to ask it. If heaven exists, <laughs> what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, oh, God. Uh, not literally. Um, <laughs> um, ah, that's such a hard question. What would I want to hear him say? Um, 
I guess welcome if he's welcoming me into heaven. But <laughs> um, I don't know. Well done for making it. This is amazing. I'm so grateful to you for taking the time and sharing a little bit with me and the listeners. So um, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very humbled to be part of it. So thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcast. And follow me on Instagram. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And we'll see you next week. Beijos.